Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by our deputy editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about some of the latest news affecting general practice. Coming up, we're talking about the GP contract. We'll be discussing what we've learned about what the BMA might be looking to achieve in contract negotiations, how the current deal that's on the table for consultants could affect talks, and whether continuity should become a contractual requirement. We'll also be looking at Labour's latest plan for primary care, which for those of us who've been around for a while might seem a bit familiar. And our good news story this week is about a British GP's success down under. First up, let's talk about the GP contract. So Nick, since the last time we spoke on the podcast, we've had the England LMC's conference where the next GP contract and actually what comes after that were front and centre of discussions among GPs. We've known for a while now that next year's contract is going to be something of a stopgap, a one-year deal that's unlikely to bring any really significant changes in the overall shape of the contractual framework for general practice. Although GPs will still very much hope that it can deliver a much-needed funding uplift uh, to cover really sharp increases in cost and some other changes, simplifications ideally to ease workload. But despite this sense of the contract not changing much, we're still very much at a crunch point for general practice on this front. We're going to come on to this a bit more later, but one of the things LMCs voted for at the conference you mentioned just now was for a ballot on whatever is agreed for next year's contract. So early next year, we could see that ballot. And if GPs decide they don't like what's on offer, that could pave the way for some form of industrial action. But before we get onto that, Emma, you were going to sort of set the scene and give a bit of background on the GP contract. Yeah, so I think it's worth doing that just so everyone knows what the current state of play is and where we're at. So the current five-year GP contract that practices in England operate under comes to an end in March next year. So that's why we're sort of really now talking about what comes next. That five-year deal was the contract that introduced primary care networks to general practice. It brought with it a big investment into primary care, but nearly all of that money went into networks and in particular, the Additional Roles Reimbursement Scheme or ARRS, which pays for lots of additional staff in general practice, but crucially at the moment does not fund GPs. So it funds roles like pharmacists, physios, paramedics. Very little of that additional funding that came with that five-year deal went into core GP funding. And that's really been one of the main complaints with the contract. That and the fact that it tied practices into set funding uplifts over each of the five years. And obviously, in that time, we've seen inflation run rampant, leaving many practices struggling to deal with rising costs. As you said, Nick, we know that the deal from April 2024 will be a one-year deal. Both the BMA and NHS England have confirmed that. And we've talked about that on the podcast before. It will be a one-year deal in part because there's currently no spending plan agreed past March 2025 and also because there's going to be a general election next year. We also know that the BMA is looking to try and get something positive from this contract update in 2024-25 after two years of having contract changes imposed on the profession And obviously, as I said, with many practices really struggling with their finances at the minute. But we also know that the BMA is also thinking longer term and looking towards what it wants to achieve from any deal that comes after that. Both the BMA and NHS England have described the contract in 2024-25 as likely to be a stepping stone to what comes next. 
And one thing that's worth mentioning as well as part of this is we also know there's a consultation on incentive payments in general practice. So the QOF and the Investment and Impact Fund, which pays primary care networks for performance, and that's due to come out imminently, is probably a bit late in the day for the results of that consultation to feed into the contract from this April. But certainly it suggests we could see a big overhaul of how those payment schemes work or whether they even still exist from April 2025 onwards. So, Nick, that's the background. And at the LMC's conference a couple of weeks ago, there were a number of debates and also a morning of discussion with working groups that were looking at key issues relating to the contract. What were some of those topics that were up for discussion? GP contracts are very much a staple topic of discussion at LMC's conferences, as you'd imagine, but probably more so now than ever because of the timing. As you mentioned just now, we're coming to the end of this current five-year contract, so there's an opportunity for change. The debates and discussions at the conference are a bit of a guide to what GPs want. You mentioned debates and wider discussions at the conference, but we also heard from the BMA England GP committee chair about what she sees or as her priorities for the contract. And I think her comments gave a really clear steer on what the BMA wants, in particular from the contract for next year, for 2024-25. So that's the, you know, the stepping stone you were talking about. The chair is Dr. Katie Bramall-Stainer, and and she told the conference, as we've mentioned, that next year's contract is essentially a one-year deal. But she made clear that that doesn't mean that it can just stand still in terms of funding. And she said it also needs to offer some key concessions. She made the point that the financial envelope for practices has essentially stood still over the past five years, while the population, demand, appointments and inflation have have risen. And of course, GP numbers in that same period have have dropped. So she said the, the bare minimum next year's contract needs to deliver is proper flexibility around PCNs and the additional roles reimbursement scheme, the ARRS and the QOF, the pay for performance framework that GPs meet targets in. That might mean a push for freedom to spend some of that ARRS money, the additional roles reimbursement scheme money, on GPs, for example, which is something lots of GPs would like to see at a time when we know some feel they simply can't afford the GP cover that they need in their practice. Um, Or we might see some simplification of targets, a higher trust approach to reduce bureaucracy for practices. She also said that the contract needs to bring a fair and proportionate uplift to cover practices costs. I mean, you talked about rising costs, inflation and so on just now. And the argument that Dr. Bramwell Stainer made was that a contract that does this would give practices some hope and stability, and that ultimately that would have a big impact on problems politicians are really focused on, like access. Yeah, so that's what the BMA GP committee chair wants. What came out of the wider debates at the conference? In terms of the debates, GPs voted to make safe working limits a red line in contract negotiations. So that could mean negotiators pushing for recognition in the contract of things like the suggested limit of 25 routine appointments a day per GP. That's the BMA's suggested limit. Also, 15-minute appointments as standard, which the BMA guidance recommends. LMC's also voted for the BMA to come up with a concrete figure for the minimum number of GPs needed to serve a certain population size. So on the last news podcast, we actually talked about the fact that there are now 2,300 patients per fully qualified full-time equivalent GP on average across England. That's way higher than a figure some people suggest as a safe limit, which is 1,800 patients per GP. 
The thing about that 1800 figure is that it isn't recognised universally. So this vote was about the BMA setting a proper evidence-based limit that its negotiators can then use as a guideline in contract talk. So to push for the kind of level of GP cover that they need for the population that general practice is serving. And GPs actually voted against a couple of things that we flagged before the conference. They voted against scrapping local enhanced services and the QOF and moving that money into core funding in return for taking on certain extra services as standard. There were also the broader discussions you mentioned. GPs discussed continuity of care and whether that could be incentivized in the contract. One thing that stood out from the conversation about that, and to be clear, the, the debate was behind closed doors. So we just heard a summary presented afterwards rather than the debate in full, was that the government's heavy focus on access leads to a sort of vicious cycle that actually leads to access problems becoming worse. The argument's basically that you focus on access at the expense of continuity, and losing continuity leads to fragmented care and therefore increased demand, and ultimately, therefore, access becomes harder. They also talked about the risks of splitting up acute and routine care within general practice. There was a vote about that idea too, which was not passed. They, the you know, GPs decided they didn't want to see that, that split occur. And about how available funding should be distributed, that was discussed too. We know, for example, when it comes to funding, that the current funding formula doesn't properly recognise the impact of deprivation on workload. So the discussion was around that sort of issue and things like whether the formula should be reviewed more often. And then if it was, how that could be done without destabilising practices. So a lot of things were being discussed then. But it's quite clear that the BMA is really keen to get a sense of what GPs feel from outside of that room, from outside those LMC representatives that were in that conference. And so since the conference, the BMA has sent a survey out to GPs to try and get a sense of what everybody's priorities are for contract negotiations. I mean, you've been looking at that survey, you've seen what they're asking. Are they the same issues? And and who's being asked to complete this? Surveys are a really important part of the BMA's leverage in many ways. It can call upon thousands of members to take part and produce really strong data to back up its calls for policy shifts or better funding or other changes that it wants to see. This survey is maybe a bit different from usual in two ways. For one thing, the BMA GP committee has said it doesn't want only BMA members to take part. So it's open to the profession as a whole. The other way it's different from usual is that this is a really direct appeal to GPs to shape priorities for contract negotiations. I think it's fair to say in a more specific way than is usually the case. It asks about continuity of care and the GP contract, safe working advice, and the future of the primary care network DES, the PCN DES. That's the part of the GP contract that delivers funding for primary care networks. On continuity of care, it asks about the importance GPs attach to continuity of care. It asks about barriers to delivering it and whether the profession believes it can or should be incentivized contractually, as we touched upon earlier. It also asks how coming together in networks has affected practices in terms of workload, for example. It asks whether GPs think the PCN does should continue. One of the key bits here, too, is, is a question about the additional roles reimbursement scheme. And this is definitely an issue lots of GPs feel strongly about, whether funding from that scheme, which is worth £1.4 billion in the current financial year, it's a massive amount of money, should be available to recruit GPs as well as the other types of staff it currently pays for. There are also points in there about how comfortable GPs are with the level of risk involved, 
in their day-to-day work about things like when they plan to retire, how work affects their quality of life, what could keep them in work or drive them out of general practice. It also asks GPs about the BMA Safe Working Guidance, and we're going to come on to that a bit more in a minute, but points like, are they already working in line with that guidance? For example, by moving to the 15-minute appointments as standard that the BMA recommends, or limiting numbers of routine appointments GPs deliver to 25 per day, or whether they would be prepared to potentially in future. So maybe taking some of those issues separately, continuity, that's obviously a really big issue. We've heard a lot of discussion about that over the last few years, and we know that continuity improves patient care. It can also make working lives better for GPs and practice staff. And there's all sorts of evidence to back that up. And I've spoken to people on the podcast about this in various episodes. We also know it's something the the Royal College of GPs support as well. So what's the BMA's thoughts on this at the moment? As you mentioned, there's a lot of evidence about the impact that that continuity of care can have. It's linked to lower mortality, fewer hospital admissions, reduced use of A&E, lower rates of referral to hospital, for example. And we know that this is a really big priority for the BMA England GP committee chair herself. She's made the argument, as I touched on earlier, that bringing back the family doctor, restoring continuity of care can actually reverse some of the problems with unsustainable demand that general practice is facing at the moment. The argument we heard about from the LMC's conference is that better continuity, less fragmented care can drive down demand because seeing the same doctor can mean problems are picked up faster, patients are more satisfied as well, and then the overall numbers of appointments potentially go down. The GP committee chair has also said that the way additional roles staff, physios, physician associates and so on are currently used can also drive up total appointments unnecessarily and that that ought to be revisited. And the argument here is that GPs should always see undifferentiated patients first and only then should patients go on to see an additional roles member of the team because the GP is perhaps best placed to decide what the patient's problem is and who's best placed to solve it. Whereas if the patient goes first to a non-GP, it might take longer for the problem they have to be fully diagnosed. And in the meantime, you're wasting appointments. I think Dr. Bramlstainer's view is that practices should not wait for someone else to come along and decide that they should offer continuity of care either. She said that they should take proactive steps to restore it. And as I say, the argument she makes is that in doing so, practices can actually bring down their workload. You actually wrote about a report last week from the Health Services Safety Investigation Body that was basically calling for continuity to be written into the GP contract, didn't you? I mean, what did that have to say? It's a really interesting read. It uses as a powerful example of what can go wrong when continuity is lost as part of care in general practice. The case of a 67-year-old man for whom a lack of continuity contributed to a delayed cancer diagnosis. And for him, that delayed diagnosis ultimately was sadly fatal. The report then zooms out to look at the wider picture and it makes some recommendations around continuity, some of which GPs would probably absolutely agree with and others they might not be so sure about. So this HSSIB report looks at the evidence around continuity and as we've said, there's plenty to show how important it can be. So it goes through some of that It also makes a really interesting point about how prioritising continuity of care can be transformative not only for patients, but also for healthcare staff. And the report says that 
there was a visible difference in the demeanour between staff in practices that operate continuity of care and those that did not. I mean, to be clear, they're, they're saying that the demeanour was better in practices where they do offer continuity of care, not the other way around. It also said patients were less likely to be frustrated because they didn't have to re-explain their problems to different people all the time. It also acknowledges that the extreme pressure general practice is under can make it hard to maintain continuity. And that point's really interesting when you think back to something we touched on earlier, the idea that focusing on access instead of continuity actually makes access worse by undermining it. The bit GPs might not be so keen on, though, is that the report says continuity should become an essential requirement of practice contracts. And this is where things get a bit trickier. The the, the Labour Party, which could be the next government potentially, has said it would incentivise continuity and take money off practices that don't deliver it. There's a risk with that sort of approach that you might end up penalising under-doctored practices that can't offer continuity because they can't recruit. So you end up deepening inequality potentially. There's an argument too that penalising practices that can't recruit is essentially blaming practices for a contract that isn't well enough funded for them to bring in the staff they need. Or it's blaming practices for the government's failure to produce enough GPs over the past decade or so. So continuity, very much a key issue for GPs, perhaps increasingly a priority for politicians, although it's hard to see them laying their access demands aside. That difficult juxtaposition could remain. But GPs won't welcome punitive targets if that's the way a future government decides to try to improve this. We're going to come on to talk about some of Labour's other ideas in a bit. Getting back to that BMA survey, there were a lot of questions in there about the BMA safe working guidance, aren't there? We were talking about this the other day, actually, in the office, and you said you thought this could be a bit of a key moment for that guidance. What are they asking about relating to that? As I mentioned earlier, there are questions in the survey about whether GPs are already doing bits of the safe working guidance, the 15-minute appointments, limiting daily appointments to 25 routine visits per GP per day, maybe even operating waiting lists to manage demand for appointments in general practice and questions about whether they might be ready to adopt those sorts of caps in future if they aren't doing it already. I just think this survey could be a real test for the idea of safe working limits and how those sit with GPs. I think it's really not clear, actually, which way the profession will swing on this. When I've walked around conferences earlier this year, you can sometimes get a sense of what GPs at those events who've been listening to speeches from people on the GP committee uh, of the BMA really think about these sorts of issues. And some are absolutely in favour, for sure. They might argue that GPs are burning out, saying enough is enough and enforcing these limits is the only way to stop even more doctors leaving the profession than are already. But I remember standing in a queue and listening to one GP, a partner, arguing passionately that for him, the idea of capping the number of appointments he did per day was just absolutely a non-starter. He seemed to be more of the view that general practice has a duty to its patients to see them if they need seeing. It meant on some days he had to see way more than 25 routine cases, so be it. And his argument was, if I don't see them, where do they go? You know, I mentioned earlier that LMCs voted for safe limits to be a red line in contract negotiations. And they also called as part of that debate for overflow systems to be set up so that when practices hit their limit, patients could shift on to another tier of general practice healthcare effectively. But as things stand, I think many GPs may just feel that the alternative for their patients, if they don't see them, is just not workable or that there there isn't really an alternative. So the question is, 
how will they vote? Will a majority of GPs across partners, salaried and locum say they're prepared to adopt safe working limits and effectively to make what happens to patients when their safe limit is reached the NHS's problem instead of their own? I honestly don't know, but it feels like a bit like the outcome of the vote could be make or break for the safe working advice in some ways. The other big issue, obviously, which we've we've talked about quite a bit already, is about primary care and working at scale and GPs' views on how well that's working. What's your sense on where things could go on that front because of the questions they're asking? I think a majority of GPs will support ARRS money being available for hiring GPs. I, I can't remember speaking to a GP who didn't support that. Um, you know, we, we touched on that sort of issue earlier. But in terms of the wider PCN DES, that's maybe harder to call um, because for some GP practices, being part of a PCN has worked, whereas for others, it may have become more of a burden. And that comes down sometimes to factors that were there from the outset. Were practices already collaborating before they were pushed into PCNs? And in areas where they were, the transition to PCNs may have been easier, more natural. Lots of GPs feel, though, that PCNs have added to workload rather than taking it away. We know from an indicative ballot of practices in 2021 that more than half of practices were prepared then to pull out of the PCN DES. It wasn't miles over half, so it's potentially still hanging in the balance. And last year, LMCs voted for the BMA to organise the withdrawal of practices from PCNs by this year, although that obviously hasn't happened. So there's a lot of antipathy towards PCNs, but also GPs in some areas Um, where they are working and who might feel the idea of scrapping the whole thing and starting again is not something they want to do. Obviously, something else that could come into play in negotiations, and we're certainly part of GPs thinking about all of this, and and particularly in the BMA, is the recent deal on consultants' pay that members of the BMA and the Hospital Consultants and Specialists Association will be voting on in the coming weeks. The government is really obviously hopeful that this deal will bring an end to industrial action by consultants. It could increase some consultants' salaries by up to 19.6% compared with 2022-23 levels. So all consultants would be receiving an additional 4.95% pay increase this year, which would apply from January 2024, but not be paid until April 2024. And that 4.95% would be on top of the 6% uplift they've already received this year. In addition, there's all sorts of changes to consultants' pay structures, which will mean there are fewer points at which pay increases. This means that consultants could reach the top of the pay scale much earlier than under the current system. And it's those changes that could see some consultants move up pay bands that mean some could see these higher pay rises. But the BMA has said the changes that will mean most consultants will receive an uplift of around 12.8% compared with their pay last year. The government's also agreed to changes to the doctors and dentists pay review body, the DDRB, which makes recommendations on doctors pay each year. And these changes will potentially benefit all branches of medicine, including general practice. We know that doctors have been very unhappy with how the pay review process has worked in recent years, with the BMA basically saying it believes it's no longer able to provide truly independent recommendations So if the consultants back the deal under those changes, the BMA would be given a say in the selection of members of the review body. And the government has also agreed to no longer include information on the country's economic performance in its remit letters to the DDRB and also remove inflation targets from their terms of reference. So all of that is quite positive, but there's less good news from the junior doctors, which I'm sure everyone knows about. It had seen there was some positive progress happening there with a new health secretary, Victoria Atkins, who was talking quite positively in an interview with The Times last weekend about engaging with junior doctors. 
But then on Tuesday, the junior doctors committee announced that talks had broken down. They felt they hadn't been offered any kind of deal that would basically address pay erosion that they've experienced since 2008. So they have announced they will be staging a three-day strike later this month, just before Christmas, and a massive six-day strike, the longest yet in early January, just after the Christmas break. Obviously, they're going to come at a very busy and difficult time. So, Nick, how do you think all of this is going to play into talks GPs are having with NHS England and the government about their contract? Clearly, you know, as effectively specialists in their own right, GPs would be hoping for some sort of outcome along the lines of what consultants are weighing up. But is that likely? GPs I, I spoke to about this said they felt that the deal on offer for GPs for next year had to match up with the deal for consultants for starters. That's a sort of minimum requirement for some people I spoke to. And if it didn't, they felt that the outcome consultants had achieved by taking industrial action showed that this might be the way general practice needed to go to get a better deal. The BMA GP committee chair said last month that the strength of the committee's negotiating position would very much be underpinned by the willingness of practices to take part in some form of collective action if it comes to that. At the LMC's conference, GPs actually voted for what could be the trigger for that action. There was a motion discussing things LMC's had voted for in previous years that haven't happened yet. And the final part of that motion called for a ballot of the profession on whatever deal is eventually put on the table. Normally, BMA and government negotiators talk with varying degrees of cooperation, and then a contract is either announced jointly or, as has been the case in some years recently, imposed by the government. And as you said, consultants have already had a 6% rise this year, and the package they're now voting on will mean that most get more on top of that. In some cases, up to more than 19% pay uplift in 2024-25 compared with 2022-23. That doesn't deliver the kind of pay restoration doctors want to see, far from it, but it's a far better position than just a few months ago when Steve Barclay was insisting there was no more money to be had. But for GPs, although salaried GPs and staff are meant to be getting a 6% uplift, funding provided for practices to deliver that isn't enough to cover the increased costs in full. Partners haven't had that 6% uplift. And in fact, they could see their income eaten into if they offered their staff the 6% rise because it isn't fully funded, as I said. And this is on top of a number of years where costs have outstripped income rises significantly because of energy costs, inflation, previous unfunded pay increases for staff, as well as hikes in the minimum wage, another one of which is coming next year. So practices will want to see enough money to cover the extra costs they face, but also to allow an actual pay rise for partners whose income was artificially inflated briefly by COVID jabs, which many worked very long hours to deliver, but now looks set to tumble fast unless there's a real step change in funding. So again, We'll wait with interest to see what comes out of negotiations the other side of Christmas and then see whether the government can put forward an offer good enough to prevent another branch of the medical profession moving towards industrial action. Labour has also been in the news this week with another plan for primary care. This is the introduction of new neighbourhood health centres, which would house a range of local services and offer walk-in GP appointments. Emma, you've been looking at this. What do we know about these plans? 
Well, we know a little bit about them, although the practicalities of it all are are far from clear, I should say. So last weekend, um, Labour Shadow Health and Social Care Secretary Wes Streeting was down in Australia looking at the Australian health system. Part of the reason he was doing this is because Australia's Labour Party won the last general election in 2022. And so he was going to look at some of the changes that a Labour government down there has introduced. So he took the Daily Telegraph along with him and there was a story in that paper last weekend saying that Streeting is looking at a new model that's being rolled out in Australia, which are urgent care clinics. Um, And these are the basis of this idea for neighbourhood health centres. So in Australia, these clinics provide walk-in appointments with doctors, GPs basically, uh, and they are being set up to reduce pressure on hospitals. They're supposed to be open seven days a week for walk-in appointments, including in the evenings. The original plan in Australia was to set up 50 of these clinics this year, although they are behind on that target, I think, and around 30 of them have opened But the aim of them really is to provide services in primary care that would otherwise have happened in an emergency department. The health minister and the prime minister in Australia have both said that they are not supposed to be a substitute for traditional general practice and that they are supposed to provide services that you would not usually get at a GP practice. So dealing with things like broken bones, stitches, minor burns, that kind of thing. But those clinics are being set up in existing GP clinics and community health centres. So Wes Streeting's been in Australia looking at all of this, and he told The Telegraph he wanted to see a similar system set up here, which would be called neighbourhood health centres that would bring together a range of health services in one place. This would include GPs, dentists, district nurses, for example, and any other service or voluntary providers that ICBs thought would benefit their local population. Now, what's interesting about this is that I mentioned there that the urgent care clinics in Australia are not supposed to be replacing existing GP services. But in the interview in The Telegraph, Wes Streeting seemed to be making it all about GP services and problems with access to GPs. He said one of the fundamental problems with the NHS in the UK is that the front door is broken, to quote, with people often waiting too long for a GP appointment. He said this delays diagnosis and treatment, it costs money and ultimately it can cost lives. He went on to say, I want the future of the NHS to be as much a neighbourhood health service as a national health service and that he thought this model would save patients time, save taxpayers money and fix the front door to the NHS. So those comments really suggest that Labour's plan is not just about relieving pressure on hospitals. West Streeting clearly sees this as also about improving access to traditional GP appointments, which is really quite different from that Australian model. How's this all going to work, though? Will there, will there be new funding and who's going to work in these centres? That's where things become a bit more unclear. So we did get some more information from the Labour Party about all of this. But to be honest with you, some of that raises way more questions than it answers. So Labour say if they win the next election, they would ask each of England's integrated care systems to set up a trial neighbourhood health centre that they say would shake up community health care by bringing together a number of services under one roof. ICSs would be asked to find somewhere to set up one of these centres from their existing estate and that place would be expected to house different services including, as I mentioned earlier, GPs, district nurses, care workers, physiotherapists. Labour said if it was the government, it would help ICSs set these up, but systems would be able to determine what they actually put in the centre. So 
Labour used the example of an area with a high proportion of elderly patients. You know, they might want to partner with a charity like Age UK, for example, and have some of their workers in the centre. So the idea behind this is that people could see a range of health professionals in one place and be treated for minor injuries, which Labour says will provide better care for patients and better value for money for the taxpayer. Labour says that almost 5 million people went to A&E last year because they couldn't get a GP appointment and that neighbourhood health centres would help relieve pressure on A&E. So again, it seems to be that they think these centres are more about access to GPs from Labour's point of view here than urgent care, as is the case in Australia. The crucial thing in the information we got from Labour, though, is that it says because these centres will bring together existing resources, they will not require any additional funding. And we know that the Labour Party has basically said that it plans to stick to current spending commitments. So there's no new money for any of this. And that is where the big questions lie. If we're talking about existing resources just moving into one place, it's not really clear how that's going to change anything. It's going to be the same number of staff providing presumably the same number of appointments, but potentially in a different location. I mean, there may be some gains in efficiency by housing services together, but it's hard to see how it's going to make any great difference. Most areas have already got urgent treatment centres of some kind of walking centres. And, you know, and there are examples around the country that some of these that are provided by GP practices, but they are obviously additional contracts to the core GP contract. And those practices are paid separately for providing the urgent care services. I mean, and Labour might want to see more examples like that being set up or maybe co-locating existing urgent care centres with GP practices or perhaps with these new community diagnostic centres that are being rolled out. But ultimately, if there's no more money, it's still the same number of staff and the same number of appointments. If they want these centres to be delivering extra appointments over and above what's currently providing, which is really what you're going to need to reduce pressure on A&E, then that's extra work. And how can that actually happen without any more money? So as I say, potentially way more questions than answers, really. Interestingly, Australia has provided additional funding for rolling out these centres there. The government provided initial capital funding for sorting out buildings and there is actually a budget for operational costs each year as well. So they've clearly seen this as a move to providing additional capacity in the system to help tackle demand. This all sounds very familiar. It's very reminiscent of polyclinics or DARSI centres, as they were often called, isn't it? Well, people who've been around and about general practice for as long as we have, Nick, will remember polyclinics or DARSI centres. They were also a labour idea. The DARSI centre name comes from the, the health minister, Lord Ara DARSI, who proposed that they were set up. And this all happened in the last couple of years of the last Labour government under Prime Minister Gordon Brown. So Lord Darcy initially proposed that London should have 150 of these polyclinics. And then this idea was expanded by the government of the time. And there was a push for every primary care trust, as they were called then, to have one. So that's about another 150 or so across England. The original plan for London was that these polyclinics would operate in a kind of hub and spoke model. So the clinic would be somewhere where practices were grouped around and could refer into. But it came to mean all sorts of different things in different areas. But essentially, the idea was about co-locating GP practices alongside specialists and a range of other services. Polyclinics, they didn't really have much of a chance to get off the ground in any meaningful way because they were effectively scrapped by the incoming coalition government in 2010. But when they were set up back in 2008, there was a lot of concerns from GPs that they were basically sucking up funding that might otherwise have been spent on general practice services 
real question marks about how much they cost and that they were being rushed out really without any evidence to show that they would make a difference in the NHS. The health think tank, the King's Fund, published a report looking at their use in 2008. And one of the things that really came out in that report that's probably very relevant in the context of this conversation is that co-location of services alone is not sufficient to generate co-working or integration of care. That report said that co-location offers opportunities to deliver more integrated care, which is is clearly what Labour wants from this plan. But it said that the evidence suggested that in practice, those opportunities are often lost. If they are to be realised, there needs to be considerable investment of time, effort and resource there's the keyword resource, into planning and development to make integration happen. Obviously, the way the health service is organised now is slightly different. We have integrated care systems that are actually being charged with integrating care. But some of those arguments around co-locating in more services in one place, which the King's Fund report from 2008 discussed, will, will almost certainly hold true today. And I think that point about you need a lot of work and effort to make integration happen, you can't just stick a load of things in one building and hope it will, is probably still true now. For this week's good news story, we're heading back down under. It's a very Australian episode this week. So what's this story all about, Nick? This is a story that that popped up all over the national press over the past week or so. Um, A story about a remarkably aptly named British GP called Dr Bush. Uh, Dr. Alistair Bush, who won a competition called Mullet Fest in Australia. Um, So just in case anyone doesn't know, a mullet is a hairstyle where your hair is cut short at the front and sides, but is long at the back. Um, And a couple of years ago, Dr. Bush, who's an army GP based in Dorset, decided to start growing a mullet specifically to conquer what he's described as the Everest of the competitive mullet growing world. And he now sits atop that Everest as winner for Mullet Fest's best international mullet category. It's quite the achievement. The competition's organisers say he's used his luxuriant locks, which I think they said had a perfect way <laughs> to raise money for charity. Uh, and he's used this platform to raise awareness about testicular cancer in particular. So that's our good news story. Britain's very first GP international mullet champion. I do love that story. It's a bit different from the normal ones we uh, we get to cover on GP Online. I particularly enjoyed your description of what a mullet is there, Nick. Thank you for that. <laughs> Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening and thanks to Nick. I'll be back next week when I'm talking to GP Dr. Sylvia Kamakiegi about what the NHS and general practice can do to better support international medical graduate GPs. So please do join me then. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the news affecting general practice and access a host of other resources on our website at gponline.com. 